0: Hey, it's good to see you, glad you're here this morning. You know, I'm kind of sober this morning, you know? Have you ever kind of walked, well, that's a good thing. (laughs) Well, I lost that. (laughs) Maybe not so much anymore. (laughs) Thanks a lot, y'all. David started talking about Baptists, and I had to dispel that. Anyway... Um, in all seriousness, good grief. Sobering, sobering. Uh, some of these texts that we've been going through are pretty sobering, right? And we think about the Lord coming back. And I'll never forget reading uh, something Spiro said years ago. He said that the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, this period of time that we're talking about, the rapture and all that stuff, and wherever you hold you know, that the rapture is, I believe it's before the tribulation, um, but the truth of the matter is, it's sobering to think that there's going to be a lot of people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and as a result are um, punished severely as a result. Think about that. That's, that's sometimes hard to kind of process, isn't it? When the Lord returns, it's going to be a glorious moment because, you know, the truth of the matter is we're with him when he returns, and we're going to take some time and look at that in Revelation 19, and we're going to walk through some of those moments where Armageddon, or the campaign of Armageddon, perhaps a better way to put it, takes place. And when the Lord returns in order to defend Israel, and in order to deal with sin, and rebellion, and the Antichrist, and the nations, it's, <laughs> what, a, what a vision of the Lord, and his power, and his awesome majesty, and his goodness, his righteousness, his justice. I don't know, in that sense, I found myself just seeing people in a much different way. I don't know how Revelation and the study of Revelation has impacted you, but the way, and at least in one of the ways it's impacted me, is I'm watching people and I'm thinking, my goodness, Eric, you say you believe these things, do you really recognize how desperate they are in need of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's something I think my prayer would be that through all these things, right, we we look at what the revelation's all about, and we look at how sin has set itself up against God Almighty, the Holy One, and how God is going to deal with it. The return of the king, the return of the king. Now, I know that's a famous movie title, right? And it was interesting, years ago, if you didn't know this, uh, Tolkien and uh, The Lord of the Rings. Love those books. I've read them many times, and I enjoy the movies, actually. Um, But the interesting part was The Return of the King, the title of that, and when they put that into a movie, whatever amount of years ago it was, somebody wrote a really interesting article on this, and uh, they talked about the impact that this particular movie, because of the subject matter, would have for generations to come, for the people that saw it who were unbelievers. Because what it did, it it got into the consciousness of people, the fact that there is a king that will return. Now think about that. There's so many things in this that are remarkable. And when you really talk about the return of the king, we're talking about the physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And he will do that. We believe in the bodily return, the physical rule and reign of Christ on this earth. And and it's essential to understand that one day the rapture is going to take place and we're going to see Jesus Christ face to face in the air. And I believe 1 John 3, 1 through 3, talks about when we see him, we will be made like him. He's holy. We are cleansed. We're going to be pure. Even the stain of sin is going to be removed from our lives. And we're going to walk with the Lord. We're going to rule and reign with Christ based on our faithfulness in this life with regard to our walk with Christ. Think about that. We talk about the millennium, and it's hard to even imagine. But in Revelation 19, we have this picture of the return of the king, Christ himself coming. The true king is going to return. He is coming, and he will bring an end to the false trinity's rule, to this whole false religious system and the worship of the Antichrist and to the whole political and economic uh, state that they have created that is all based on them or at least the antichrist and the worship of him. He's gonna totally deal with that. I, I don't know if, if that hits you like it hits me and sometimes I work through these things and I'm studying through these things and it's just, it's overwhelming. Has anybody else been overwhelmed by revelation? It's overwhelming to think about this. I thank God for it. But in many ways it's it's overwhelming. Three things this morning, and I, I'm gonna I got a lot to say and and you know a short time. I know y'all don't think it's a short time, but it's a short time. <laughs> the revelation of Jesus Christ, the rule of Jesus Christ, as well as the retribution of Jesus Christ. The revelation, the rule, and the retribution. Remember, revelation just means the uncovering the uncovering. When the Lord Jesus Christ was born on this earth, he in effect covered his glory, right? He, he didn't cease being God. That's a, that's a wrong way of thinking about Jesus Christ in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. But what he did is he in effect covered his, the fullness of his true identity, And what we're seeing in Revelation is the uncovering of his full majesty and true identity as he comes and he deals with sin and he deals with the rebellious and he wins and rescues Israel back to himself. All those different factors. When we talk about the rule of Jesus Christ, he's going to rule the nations with iron. And we talk about the retribution of Jesus Christ, he is paying back those who have killed the saints, who have come against the Jewish people, who have rebelled against him and his rule. And in spite of all the seven-year period of time and all the opportunity for people to recognize that the Lamb of God and the salvation in the Lamb uh, is available, in the midst of it, they have rebelled. And so there's retribution, but it's just, it's righteous retribution. When we talk about this period of time, and we're going to look at... Revelation chapter nineteen and the verses there, but Revelation one, seven through eight, early on, it says this, Behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I love that word, the Almighty. It's, it's Pantocrator. It literally means he who holds all things in his hands. The Almighty One who holds everything in his hands. <laughs> it's so cool. At the end of the tribulation, this is where we're at in this particular period of time, the Lord returns to rescue Israel. And it's really fascinating because when you think about the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, and the warning given, and it's in other passages as well, that when they see this, they're to flee Israel. Ultimately, I believe they go to Basra in Edom, which may be Petra. Okay, it's south of Jerusalem, south southeast. Many of the Jews are still actually within Jerusalem. The Antichrist has gathered his armies. We saw this in the sixth bowl where the Euphrates rivers is dried up and the armies come from Babylon and they now begin to gather at Armageddon, the valley of Jezreel. And I've been there and I've looked out over that and in my mind I was thinking this is where the battle takes place and that's not necessarily so. It begins to go down to Jerusalem and then on to Basra where the Antichrist leads the nations in order to come against the Jewish people and to destroy them. They've gathered now in the Valley of Jezreel or Armageddon. In the midst of this, they begin to march south. And you can imagine that all these nations have come together with their armies, with the Antichrist leading them. And the Jews recognize that they're going to be under attack. Who can stand against this kind of an army? Think about that. Revelation 19 verses 11 and following starts out, says this, John saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Here now begins to be the fullness of the revelation of the majesty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. John sees seven heaven opened, and Walvard puts it this way: the second coming will be preceded by the sun being darkened and the moon not giving her light, stars falling from heaven and other phenomena, not only mentioned in Matthew 24, but vividly revealed in the Revelation. I mean, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and and John sees heaven open and he sees the Lord sitting on this white horse, we have this vision given of the Lord Jesus Christ that is awe-inspiring. There's, there's no words that can do it justice. There's no way that I could try to put it into something that would capture your imagination in a way that would uh, in any way, shape, or form compete with the reality of what's going to happen. John, I'm sure, was in so many ways, he's obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but with his own personality and all the things that he has seen, he's already fallen at the, at the feet of the angel and worship because he was so in awe and inspired by all this, and the angel had to tell him, get up, don't worship me, worship the Lamb. I mean, John is trying to grapple with what he's doing he sees in the midst of all these visions that he has been given. And here he has the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he literally had walked on the earth with and laid his head on his chest and had been close to him, had eaten with him, had in effect watched him throughout all his uh, ministry in the Galilee and watched him suffer and die and had been there in terms of the resurrection and seen the resurrected Lord. But now we have a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that is beyond explanation. It's indescribable to think of the power and the awesomeness of God in the midst of this. He's seen sitting upon a horse, a white horse, and it said several things about him. First of all, he's faithful, meaning he's trustworthy. I love that. The Lord is trustworthy. You know, the thing is that the Lord never has a motive contrary to that which is good. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord never has a motive. He never has an agenda other than that which is good. He loves and he always seeks what's best. He is faithful. He is trustworthy over and over and over and over again. In all of our lives, our testimonies, um, no doubt, will reflect the fact that God has been there and that He's been good and that He's been trustworthy and He's faithful in everything. He's true, meaning without error. James says that He doesn't even have the shadow of a shadow, there's no shifting shadow within the Lord. He's pure. He's holy. He's without error. That's his character. He goes on, he says, he judges and wages war. How? In righteousness. Literally, he is right in what he does. What he does is always right. He's holy and therefore all of his actions are pure. They are holy. He doesn't wage war in order to somehow do anything other than that which is right. And in this case, we know why he's waging war. He's waging war because of the rebellion against him. He's waging war because creation is his, because all humanity is his, because the people of Israel are his. And so he wages war against those who would rebel against him, even when he has offered salvation, given his own life for it. His eyes are a flame of fire. He sees all and he understands all that he sees. You can see that back in Revelation 114 where John first saw him says his eyes are like flaming fire. Just a fascinating picture of the fact that God is able to look at us and he knows all of our motives. He knows everything about us. He knows all the details of our lives. He knows why we do what we do. He knows our agenda. He knows everything. There's no way that you can hide anything from him. It's incredible, isn't it? He has many diadems on his head, meaning he is royalty. And it hasn't just been bestowed upon him, but it's his right. It's his right. He has a name written on himself that no one knows except himself. And that's a fascinating picture. God God is independent of anybody else. He he doesn't need anybody else in that sense. He is who he is. He's self-sufficient. He's the eternal God. God. And he has a name that nobody else knows. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And this is interesting because this picture that John sees now is of a warrior. It's of the uncovering of the pure, the majesty and the glory of God Almighty and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this robe indicates the great war that he alone fights. The great winepress of God is trampled by the Lord Jesus Christ. His name is the Word of God, and that's that's what we've been given. John is the author of Revelation. He's also the author of the Gospel of John, and he starts out his entire Gospel by saying uh, the the Word. He's focused on the eternal logos of God, the one who has always existed. It's interesting when you contrast when he first came to now. (laughs) When he was born, he came as a child in a manger. We celebrated that not too long ago. You think about that. Child in a manger. He came in humility. And now he comes in the fullness of his glory, meaning the true identity of who he is. His purpose, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey indicating peace. And he went to the cross willingly and laid down his life. Now he rides in to save Israel on a white horse because he's coming for war. His deity, the name we're given when he first came is Jesus, meaning Savior, as he came to die. But now we're told that he has a name which no one knows except himself. And the name, the Word of God, meaning he's the eternal self-existent one. Wow, the contrast here is magnificent, isn't it? You think about the Lord Jesus Christ coming as a child, and now he's coming riding on a horse or riding in on a donkey. Now he's coming for war. (laughs) Amazing. So we have these pictures of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the uncovering of who he is. But we also have in verse 14 and following the rule of Jesus Christ. First part of this, the armies which are in heaven, it's in the plural. There are several armies, and the question is, who are these armies? And I would suggest that we at least know two. There's the angelic host, the angelic armies. There's certainly the church. I believe also that the multitude that came out of the tribulation may be one of these armies, as well as the Old Testament saints. All connected, all part of the kingdom of God, following the Lord as he leads in this war on white horses. It's fascinating, isn't it? I told you before, and I always remind Holland, she always wanted a horse when she was a little girl, and I said, well, we can't get you one, but one day you're going to have one. (laughs) Yeah. Took a second, come on, you know. (laughs) They're clothed in fine linen. And we saw that, the speaking of righteousness, the righteous deeds, specifies white and clean, meaning with no blemish nor stain of sin. Think about that. Now, folks, can you imagine this? We are with the Lord at this moment. Wherever you believe the rapture is, at this particular moment, we're, we're there. <laughs> There's no, no question about that. And we're following the Lord on white horses as he comes to wage war against the antichrist and the nations at the Bemis seat of christ which is where believers will stand in order to give an account for the work our works will be tested that's taken place the church is purified anything that has ever happened in our lives that is not of god is burned up anything that is as a result of our walk with the lord and our walk of faith remains and is precious we are purified in that sense What an amazing truth. In verse 15, it states that from the Lord's mouth comes a sharp sword, and the sword here that is used, the description of it is a broad sword, meaning it's a long sword, and it was used to stab, unlike in other passages through Scripture where it's talking about a shorter sword that's almost like a dagger. Here, it's the idea of judgment, and it's to strike down the nations with the sword. Out of his mouth, Is that his word is sharp and what he says takes place, in this case, the judgment of the nations. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. You get the picture? The Lord Jesus Christ, this isn't difficult for him. He's God Almighty, He's God All Powerful, He is infinitely in control and absolutely authoritative and powerful in all that He does. He will break the nations like you would break pottery. He treads the winepress of the wrath of God. On his robe and thigh, his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is above all. There is no one greater than he. There's many different passages on this, but in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules, He reigns, He's majestic, He's righteous. Well, there's also the retribution. See, not only is going to rule, and he's not only coming back to wage war and righteousness and deal with the nations and break them like pottery. But there's the idea of retribution here. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 is a really interesting verse. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Speaking of the wicked, vengeance is mine, retribution is mine. To pay back what somebody is owed, what they deserve as a result of their sinful behavior, their rebellious attitude towards the Lord God Almighty. If you look at Matthew chapter 24 verses 27 and following, we're given a picture of the Lord returning and the heavens are open. John sees this vision and we're given this description of the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and in the midst of that, we're given how he comes back. What's, what's this going to look like? What's this going to be like? And in Matthew 24 verse 27 and following, he says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, speaking of the judgment to come. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. What an amazing picture this is, folks. How that actually takes place, we're not really told. But the fact is he's going to return, and John sees the heavens open. He sees the the Son of God sitting on a white horse, and he's coming back to wage righteous war, to bring justice where there has been none. I like how Warren Wiersbe describes Matthew 24 verse 27 He says it indicates that the return of Jesus to the earth will be sudden like a stroke of lightning the event that precedes his return is the gathering of the Gentile nations at Armageddon the eagles flying around the carcass pictures the awful carnage that will result from this great battle and I would suggest a series of battles the cosmic changes mentioned in Matthew 2429 precede the return of Jesus Christ to the earth in other words the entire cosmos begins to recognize and begins Begins to shake and give credit, and it begins to share forth in a sense that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. We're not told what the sign of the Son of Man in heaven is, but the people on earth at that time will recognize it. Our Lord's second coming at the end of the tribulation will be a great public event with every eye seeing him. That's amazing, isn't it? Think about that. In Revelation 19, 17 and following. We're told about this war, this campaign, so to speak. We're not given all the details of it, and you gotta go to the Old Testament, you gotta begin to fit some of these things together together and many people have done that in many different ways. And I will argue with you because, boy, I'll tell you what, there's so much information on this. Whether it's Zechariah, whether it's Isaiah, uh, whether it's Hosea, whether it's Matthew or Mark or Luke or some of the indications there. And clearly, obviously, in the book of Revelation, there's so much information on this, folks. It's amazing. But understand this. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back again, and he will deal with the rebellious on this earth. Period. You can mark that down. Amen. Verse 17 says, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. There's a massive campaign that's going to take place here. And the nations have gathered against Israel and God himself is going to intervene and there is going to be an incredible battle. And all the birds are being called in. Contrast that to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the peace and the grace and the goodness. This is horrific. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Wow. now the question is in the midst of this the lord returns and obviously he does so in order to rescue israel there's two things that really begin to take place in the midst of israel and what's going on with them the first is that national revival takes place it takes place ahead of his return right before he returns. Some would suggest that it's two days prior to, that they have two days worth of national revival, not only in Jerusalem, but down in Basra in Edom, because these are the prophecies given in the Old Testament. People crying out, recognizing that they had missed the reality that Jesus Christ is their Savior, and now have come to that conclusion and recognizing that they are in need of salvation by their Messiah, not only spiritually, but also obviously, physically. Physically. In Isaiah chapter 53, 1 through 9, you can see this, and I'm sure that passage is very familiar to you, where they recognize that they had rejected this Messiah, that they had thought of him as just an ordinary man, but now they begin to realize that he was no ordinary man, and I can't help but think that the 144,000 were influential in this, that the angels flying in the mid-heavens, that the circumstances that they find themselves in that are clearly stated within Scripture that they're going to go through, all of these things. Have been shared with the Jewish people. And I believe that God begins to work in their hearts to bring them to the point of a national revival. Not just individuals, but as a nation, they begin to cry out that Jesus Christ truly is their Messiah. What an amazing picture. In Zechariah 12:9 and following. And again, there's many passages on this one. I picked this one because I thought this was just so beautiful. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day. There will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadramon in the plain of Megiddo. He's speaking of when Josiah was killed by Pharaoh and the mourning and the weeping that took place because of Josiah's death. It will be similar to that. In the midst of all of this, they begin to mourn. They weep bitterly because they look on the Lord whom they have pierced. And they realize that this is their Messiah. What an incredible picture of salvation and grace and supplication. So there's a national revival that takes place. But clearly there's also the need of rescue from the hand of the Antichrist. With his armies, they are in physical (laughs) danger. Psalm 79 verses 5 and following. Again, deal with this. The first four verses of Psalm 79 speak of the the death and the destruction that take place within the tribulation period of time. And in verse five, it says, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to me. Us For we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoners come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. (laughs) National revival takes place. They recognize, they mourn over the Messiah that they had pierced and they recognize this Messiah is their Messiah. And they begin to cry out for salvation from the Antichrist and his armies that have come against them. I believe that they move from Armageddon to Jerusalem where there's a massive battle, and Jerusalem is defeated, the Jews there, many of them are killed, horrible wartime crimes and all kinds of horrible things happen, and then they go on down to Basra, where this national revival now begins to take place for the Jews. And they've come against these people in Basra. They've come against the Jews in Basra, the Antichrist and his armies, and they begin to cry out, the Jews do, for God to save them. And the Lord hears them. Oh, I tell you what, sometimes, folks, I I wonder how we view Christ. This revelation is such an amazing picture of God's faithfulness, that he's a covenant-keeping God, that he loves people, that he loves justice and righteousness, because that's who he is. In the midst of this, the Antichrist is at the head of these armies, and it's really interesting. Here's this guy that has ruled the world, that has caused so many, so much suffering, has deceived so many. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, we're told, in effect, that the Lord dispels him without any issues at all whatsoever. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. All the hope and all the, the belief, the deception that has been put into this guy. And when the Lord returns on his horse, followed by the armies of heaven, us in tow, the Lord slays him with the breath of his mouth, without any issues at all. There's so much about that that's amazing. Think about that. All the nations have put their trust And something false, and in one moment, the Lord dispels of it. See, when truth shows up, folks, no lie can stand. When light shows up, the darkness flees, and that's reality. That's God, and only God can accomplish that. Only God can do that. After dispatching the Antichrist and his armies, the Lord continues to Jerusalem, where the rest of the Antichrist's armies are killed, perhaps along the way, and the Jews are saved. In Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 and following, it's a fascinating picture of Isaiah having an image and asking uh, this incredible, majestic individual, what's going on here? He says, who is this who comes from Edom? Edom, Basra, this is where the Lord first returns and deals with the Antichrist and the nations. That's what I believe. And then he goes on to Jerusalem. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And this majestic person answers and says, It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Oh man, that's the Lord. He's come back and he has returned and he is absolutely establishing his authority and his power over the Antichrist and the nations and he has now rescued the Jews that were in Basra and Edom and now he's coming in to Jerusalem, which is his own. He goes on, he says, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress indicating that this has already begun? And the Lord answers, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Wow. Folks, I can't can't get it out like it gets in. I won't even try. I'll just get louder and louder and y'all go back. Think about it. All the sin and all the deception, all the pain and all the suffering, all the wrong. And the Lord, in effect, says, That's enough. That's enough. And he steps into this and he comes back and he rescues Israel. Now he comes up north to Jerusalem, and Isaiah has this picture of one coming from Basra and Edom, and he begins to ask him, who are you? And I believe it's the Lord. Well, in Zechariah chapter 14, verses three and following, we're told this, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And after this, after the fighting, There's a victorious ascent in verse 4. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. The Lord comes up from Edom, from Basra and Edom, and he goes... Into Jerusalem, and he finishes off this battle, and then the victory is sent onto the Mountain of Olives, Mount of Olives, where the Mount of Olives is split. The Lord's return involves a lot of different things. Let me just try to narrow it down for you. The national revival of Israel and the return to the Lord as Messiah. The Lord's rescuing of Israel from the Antichrist and his armies as he returns with the armies of heaven, including us, the church. The death of the Antichrist and his armies, the Lord returns to Jerusalem and his victory is sent to the Mount of Olives, which is ultimately torn in two. And this then marks the end of the tribulation. Wow. Folks, how how are we walking with God today? How are we walking with the Lord today? Do we have a picture of God that is true from the word of God, which with regard to who he really is, his true identity? Do we recognize that the Lord walks with us every day as believers, that we have the opportunity to experience him moment by moment every day of our lives? And this awesome vision that John is given of the Lord's return and all the different characteristics of who he is and his power and his authority to rule and to reign and to bring retribution. The fact is the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. There is going to be a return of the king and he's going to deal with rebellion and sin. He's going to rescue Israel. How how is that impacting us day by day, moment by moment? How are we waking up in the morning just saying, Lord, today's your day? Here's my life. Use it in whatever way you choose. You fill in the blanks. You know all the details of your life. You know where you're at. You know the relationships you have. You know the things that you've been called to, led to be a part of. You know how God works in your life. You know what you are doing or what you're not doing that either you should be doing or you shouldn't be doing. You know all that. How is this recognition that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is going to return that we're going to see him face to face one day? how is that impacting you moment by moment in the midst of our time, in the midst of our day? Boy, I'll tell you what, that's, it's impacted me, folks. There's so many things out there that are just such nonsense, aren't there? It's just clutter, it's noise, it won't stand. We're not gonna be talking about it when we get to heaven one day. I guarantee you we're not even gonna think about it, praise God. And in the midst of it, the question is, what are the eternal things that we're looking to? What are the things that divide us that absolutely don't need to? They're utterly childish. And we need to set them aside and say, the Lord is strong and mighty. He's who we serve. See folks, this is what this is all about. We talk about the body of Christ, the church. We have the opportunity of experiencing God day by day, of knowing him more and more, of being filled with all of his fullness so that through us his love begins to be revealed, not only through our lives to one another within the relationships of our families, but also the family of God so that the world that has no hope can recognize that there really is a God and that he is able to transform Because they see us. How are we walking with the Lord today? How are we saying yes to him in the midst of our time? Because he is going to return. There is a return of the king. (laughs) You can bank on that.